the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Your word is sharper than any two-edged sword. And it cuts deep into my heart. The word to stand on for life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome to the Wednesday edition of The Word to Stand On for Life. My name is Pastor Ken Cruzado, and today I'm filling in for my pastor, Pastor Ron Arbaugh, who normally hosts this show. And so if this is the first time you're tuning in this week, uh, I have been filling in for him from since Monday because Pastor Ron has been out of town. Uh, both he and Paula uh, were in California. He is a, attending the International uh, CCA Pastors Conference. And so he's actually returning back here in town tonight, so you can keep him in his flight in prayer, both for he and Paula. He will back be, be back here uh, in San Antonio tonight. And so that means tomorrow for the Date Day edition, it'll be Pastor Ron and Paula as usual, here to take your questions, questions about relationships, Questions about um, what the word says, what a godly marriage looks like. That's what the date day edition is for. Now, for today, we're going to continue what we always do here, which is take your Bible questions. Questions about doctrine, questions about Jesus, questions about how to put the word of God into practice in your life. And so that's why we're here. Let me give you the phone numbers to call in 210. 210- Three four zero ninety five eighty five two one zero three four zero nine five eight five. That's the toll. Um, that's the local number. The toll free number is eight seven seven six three zero five seven five seven eight seven seven six three zero five seven five seven. There's an email address, and that's questions at calvarysa.com. Questions at calvarysa.com. You can listen on the KSLR app, super easy. There's a button at the top to, to dial into the radio studio. You can ask your question on the air. And you can also submit your question using our website or using the church app, whatever we can do to make it easy for you. That's why we're here. So Wednesday edition, real quickly, programming note. That means here at Calvary Chapel, it is our Old Testament study night. So that means... Since Pastor Ron is not going to be here just yet, we have Pastor Chris Sanchez teaching tonight in the Old Testament. And so I think his study is going to be in First Kings. Always a good time. He is a great teacher. Come out and join us 7 o'clock here in the sanctuary, or you can tune in online. We'd much rather see you in person here at Calvary Chapel. Okay, phone lines are open. If you uh, want to call in, you can do so. In the meantime, we've got f- uh, uh, numerous Anonymous questions and some not anonymous, so we'll get to those. First one is anonymous, and it says, can someone accidentally take the mark of the beast? What would happen if during the end times, a child was forced to take the mark? So anonymous, uh, this is a question, one of the common ones that's asked in some form or fashion, and so let me address it. To be very clear, the mark of the beast is not something anyone can accidentally take. It's not something you can accidentally take. 
by taking the mark, and this is not now, this is during the seven-year tribulation. So during the end times, there will come a time where people who are left behind, people who are here during the tribulation, will be forced, forced in a way that the society around them is going to be constructed to where anyone who who is a believer in Christ will have a very difficult time, some, even many, to the point of where they have to give up their lives. And the system will be constructed in a way, the economic system and the society in general will be constructed in such a way to where uh, a mark, whatever this mark is, is going to be required in order to function. Well, this mark, by taking it, it, you're signifying that you are, you are pledging your allegiance, if you will, to the devil. And you are rejecting, you are rejecting Jesus Christ and the forgiveness of sin that is offered. And, and so in that sense, there is no uh, way to accidentally take it. And so, you know, when people were saying, don't take the vaccine or don't do this or don't, don't get a tattoo or whatever it may be, uh, there's no way to accidentally take it, especially not now, because right now we're not going to see the mark of the beast. But it is a, a, a conscious decision to reject Christ once and for all. Now, the second part of your question here, what would happen if during the end times a child was forced to take the mark? And so this is interesting. It's also important. Every time you look at the mark of the beast, and, and it's not mentioned a lot in the scriptures. Uh, it's one of those things that can be easily overly sensationalized. But in Revelation uh, chapter 19, uh, chapter 20, and I think in chapter 16, and maybe a couple of, uh, uh, one more other chapter, uh, whenever the mark of the beast is mentioned, it is always in conjunction with worship. Worshiping the image uh, of uh, of the devil, and so it's not something that uh, that that is associated with accidentally, you know, taking that mark. The mark itself is a, a form of worshiping the image of the beast. That's literally what it means. And so, during the end times. Um, what God is looking at is the same thing he's looking at today, which is he's looking at the heart of the people. And not so much the outside, though taking that mark as a, a conscious decision by rejecting Christ, God will look at that, but he's looking at your heart. And so in the same manner, anyone that is forced or tricked or whatever during the, the end times, God looks at their heart. He doesn't look at the outside. It's not like, you know, once, once something happens on the outside, it, it, you, you forever lose your salvation. That's not going to happen. And that's not what happens. And so we have to sort of remove this, uh, this sort of sensationalized aura about the mark of the beast and just think of it as worshiping the beast, worshiping the devil. And once somebody does that, they're rejecting Christ. So a child or anybody that's, you know, forced to do something on the outside, God looks at their heart. God looks at their heart. So anonymous, I hope that makes sense. It will be. Now, now during the end times, again, Revelation chapter 19, chapter 20, uh, it will be an incredibly difficult time for those here that are left behind. Uh, chapter 13, 14, uh, all of these mentions of the mark are, are all in the context of people who are enduring an immense amount of suffering. And so that's why today we are motivated, those of us who are believers, we're motivated by the, the pain and suffering that we know will come to those who reject Christ in the end times, to those that are going to be left behind. And, and 
there's a practical sense to this anonymous that I think is so important and so overlooked. In the bigger scope of things today, if I keep eternity at the forefront of my mind whenever I'm having a conversation with somebody, I'm not going to be offended as easily by what they say or by what they do. I'm not going to be caught off guard if a sinner acts like a sinner because my mind will be focused on I, I even if I don't know this person or even if this person doesn't like me, I don't want them to suffer. I want them to know Christ. I want them to receive forgiveness for their sin because I don't want them to suffer. I don't want them to endure what's going to come to those that reject Christ. This is especially practical for us. You know, we're entering into the holiday season and we all know what happens during the holiday season. We sit around and we eat a lot of food and we see a lot of people, friends and family, maybe some that we haven't seen in a long time. And and some people we're going to see are people who uh, are not Christians. And or maybe some people that are mad at you. Some people we have not had the best relationship with. But if we're thinking about the suffering that's going to come to to them, if the rapture happens and we're out of here, the ones we love and we care about are going to go through the most difficult time this earth has ever seen, and we don't want them to. So we keep eternity at the forefront of our mind, and, and what that does is it helps us to focus on loving people and sharing Jesus with them. Thick skin and tender hearts. That's exactly what Jesus gives us. So Anonymous, I hope that helps. Uh, the mark itself, you know, don't worry about accidentally taking it because it's not something that people are going to accidentally do. All right, let's go to... The next question is from Anonymous. It says, in Acts chapter 1, uh, it reads, uh, I'm sorry, Acts chapter 2, verse 1. It reads, when the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. All is a pretty distinct word. Was the house very big or was there not a lot of believers there? Anonymous, this is important. I think that uh, the King James actually helps us understand this passage. And this and now context here is important. This is the passage, the chapter in the New Testament where we see the birth of the church. And so what we see time and time again here in this chapter, and even in the chapter prior, in chapter one, when they were gathering together for prayer, there were uh, descriptions or word pictures painted that described all of them being together. But it doesn't literally mean Every single person in the world that was a believer was going to be packed into one house. That's not what it means. So when we keep that in mind, we look also at uh, the way the, the King James explains it. And I like this. It says here, they were all together in one accord. In one accord. So the idea here is that they were, as believers, united in Christ. United in Christ. Physically, yes, they were together. But the idea here is that believers were uh, of one heart and of one mind. And what the New, G- New King James says, that they were with each other in one accord, together in one accord. And that's the sense that we get here from this passage. A beautiful passage. It really is because we watch really the the acts of the Holy Spirit. The book of Acts is the acts of the Holy Spirit taking place. And here in the second chapter, what you mentioned, Anonymous, is uh, this is the the, the birth of the church where we see the Spirit come upon the people and it would appear to be in cloven tongues of fire. Uh, and, and it was a one-time event to signify to everyone there that, that God is doing a supernatural work by 
birthing, giving birth to his church. Later on, uh, in that same chapter, remember, and again, this is the, the sort of the word picture painted throughout the second chapter. It is in verse 44 where Luke would write that all who believed were gathered together there. Well, it, again, not literally meaning every single believer in the entire world was there, but it's, it's to paint the picture that they were all together in one accord. So I hope that helps. Uh, we have a question that was called in um, from Ron in Converse. If you practice replacement theology, does it have any effect on a Christian salvation? Uh, Ron, I remember this question. Uh, specific to your question, no, it does not. But it can have a detrimental effect, for sure, on the way you interpret the Scriptures. The Bible tells us this, that there is only one way for a person to be saved, and that's through faith in Jesus Christ. Now, your eschatology or your eschatological views, your soteriology, your views on how uh, a person is saved, uh, your, 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 any part of your theology is going to shape uh, you, how you view God. And so um, theo- that's what the study of theology is and different sections of, of theology. But a replacement theology, and, and as bad of a teaching as it is, doesn't mean that somebody is going to lose their salvation. You can't lose your salvation. Now, you do have to, in order to be saved, you have to be saved by the Jesus of the Bible. And, uh, you know, you can't take a Mormon Jesus or, or a Jehovah Witness Jesus or anything else and any other Jesus out there by any other definition and, and say that that Jesus forgives you of your sin. He doesn't. That's a made-up Jesus. But uh, those who are of the Reformed theology persuasion, which by and large is mostly those who believe in covenant theology, I'm sorry, that covenant theology is the other name for replacement theology. Um, those who uh, ascribe to that type of theology doesn't mean that they aren't saved. There are plenty of Calvinists that are saved, those of Reformed theology, and and even those in that smaller sect within Reformed theology that believe in covenant theology or, or replacement theology uh, doesn't mean that they're, they're not really saved because we know salvation only comes through faith in Christ. But like I said, I'll say it one more time, it does, however, dramatically affect the way you interpret the Bible. And, um, you know, replacement theology is a bad thing. So I hope that helps. Thanks, Ron. Okay, let's go back to our questions that have been submitted. Uh, Phone lines are open if you want to call in. The next one is from Sylvia. Sylvia says, can a person go on living a single life for the Lord, but have romantic partners? Not sexual, but watch movies together, watch movies, etc. together. Uh, (laughs) Well, Sylvia, really, I would say that you have to go to the Word of God. And the Word of God is not going to give you explicit details on... um, how your dates should go, or what you should do. One thing you do know for sure, and you say this, Sylvia, in your question, is sex outside of marriage is sin. And so godly people who are single that are going to go out on dates are not going to have sex. And if they do, they are in sin. Um, So what we know for sure is the Word of God tells us that this is God's will for us to abstain from sexual immorality. And so now your question here, though, Sylvia says, can we go on uh, having romantic partners? Uh, sure. Sure. You know, the, the one thing that I love most about walking with Jesus is this. We have freedom in Christ. Galatians chapter five says that, that 
it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. In other words, we, we don't live our lives as Christians according to set rules or, or, or do's and don'ts. Now, there are things that are obvious that we can't do. And again, we refer to God's Word. Those things that are in violation or contradiction to God's Word is sin, and those are things that we don't do. And a single, single people, if they choose to date and have romantic partners, one of the things that you have to be careful about is, is uh, making sure you do not elevate your romantic partner to a place to where they are above Jesus. I've seen this time and time again. It always, it, it, not always, but it happens often where um, godly people, people who love Jesus and are fruitful in their walk, will get involved in a relationship and, and they're you know, using the scriptures to identify somebody that loves Jesus. But as they progress in their relationship, because Jesus is no longer the center, they it becomes a form of idolatry. And and they, they, they become hyper emotional. Uh they they start they, they stop start neglecting their their ministry that they were called to do. They they don't serve as much anymore. You know, their time in the word is neglected. And all these things are signs or or, or indicators that the person you thought was sent to you by God is somebody that really isn't. Because what they're doing is taking you away from your relationship with Jesus. Sylvia, here's one thing that that I tell single people who are uh, seeking uh, the partner that God has for them, the man or the woman that will become their husband or their wife. You keep serving Jesus. You are faithful to do what's in front of you. And as you're faithful to do what's in front of you, you're not going to the things of this world to try to catch somebody. You're faithful. And then God will handpick the person that he has prepared for you and place them right in front of you. And I love this because this is exactly what God does. You know, when, when, when you know, Isaac was being faithful and serving and he was in the desert God is the one that brought him Rebecca. And and he knew, he, you know, it's not because he went on a on a, on an app or he went online or you know, he went to the bar or to the club. Uh, he was just doing what God told him to do. And this is important for us. So single people uh it, use your life to honor the Lord. Look at the apostle Paul as an example. Even if there are people around you that used to be single and maybe they're no longer single, don't be discouraged. You have the unique opportunity to devote your entire life to serving Jesus undistracted. And so take advantage of that. So, Sylvia, short answer to your question is, yeah, you're free to do whatever you feel led of the Spirit to do. Just honor Jesus. Honor Jesus in everything that you do. Um, and you'll be fine. Uh, one more thing about this, and we're inside, uh, just about inside three minutes, almost two minutes, and so we don't have time for any phone calls in this first half of the show. Uh, this is so important. Uh, whenever you are looking for somebody that you you have a desire, like an emptiness in your heart, to, to, to have a, a husband or a wife, uh, People don't listen, but whenever you go out of God's will for your life and you find somebody, it always seems like this is the right one. And because everything is perfect. But when you're inside God's will, you and you know that you're obeying God and the person that you meet is obeying God that's when you can know with certainty. But when you go outside and you do the things of the world, yes, there are outliers and there's always somebody that comes up to me and says, well, you know, 
I know you guys don't like it, but uh, I, I, you know, I did find my wife at the club or or online, or, or I, I understand that, but that's just it's just not the norm. Let's just say that's not that God can use anything in any way, but you want to be so occupied with God, what God has planned for your life, that by Staying in the direction, being faithful to doing what God is doing in your life, you will be ready when God says, it's time now for me to bring that person that you've been waiting for. And you'll know it too. You'll know it. There's couples here at our church that uh, I just love it. I love their story because they were simply being obedient to doing what God says to do. Some of them, they've known their whole life and didn't even realize that that was the one that God has called to be my partner. But that's exactly what God does. And so, thank you, Sylvia, for your question. Praying for single people that are out there. You can hear the music. That means we are done with the first half of the Wednesday edition of The Word to Stand On for Life. My name is Pastor Ken, and I'll be back in two minutes. Back to the Word to Stand On for Life. We're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. Now, here's Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome back to the second half of the Wednesday edition of the Word to Stand On for Life. My name is Pastor Ken Cruzado, and I have been filling in for Pastor Ron. This week, he will be back here on the air Tomorrow for the date day edition. So both he and Paula will love to take your questions. They're going to talk about their trip, I'm sure. And uh, they should be back here in town uh, sometime later tonight. So 210-340-9585, 210-340-9585. The toll-free number, if you're outside of the local area, is 877 877- Six three zero five seven five seven eight seven seven six three zero five seven five seven. The email address is questions at calvarysa.com. Questions at calvarysa.com. I'm just thinking here, I've been saying this toll free number and the local number for a long time for years now, but I don't even know if long distance is a thing anymore. <laughs> it used to be. But there you go. There you have a toll free number in case. You want to use that. All right. The next question, phone lines are open, is from Anonymous. I heard your answer yesterday, and I I think this email came in yesterday, so I assume it meant Monday. I heard your answer yesterday about how God did not hate Esau. Don't you think that your answer contradicts the doctrine of predestination? Anonymous... The answer is no, it, it doesn't. And I think this is important to understand. The doctrine of predestination or the doctrine of election is biblical. And so, so Christians, when you study your Bible and you come across this doctrine of predestination or doctrine of election, you know for sure that this is exactly what, what, what the Bible teaches. Now, uh, Ephesians chapter 2 and 1 Peter, uh, they, those two in particular, but also in, in, in Romans. We have this doctrine that comes up, but we don't have to be afraid of what this doctrine means. So when you ask Anonymous if my answer contradicts the doctrine of predestination, the answer is no, it doesn't. I think we have to explain it clearly what this doctrine means. So the doctrine of predestination means that God chooses those who are his. And that is biblical. And he does so before the foundation of the earth. Again, that's biblical and there is no disagreement there. Where some would disagree is when we talk about the basis of predestination or the basis of election. 
we know, and Peter writes that, it is his foreknowledge, God's foreknowledge, that is the basis of this doctrine of election. And so God knows those who will be his. And so those are the ones he chooses. This does not, and some of the Reformed theological persuasion would argue, well, then that then puts the responsibility of salvation on the man. And we know that Ephesians chapter 2 says that salvation cannot be of works. And I would agree, it is not. But choosing to receive forgiveness in Christ is not a work. It's not. Jesus is the one that that initiates the invitation. He's the one that says, uh, I am the one that's going to die for Ken's sin. There's nothing that Ken can do to earn his way into heaven. So therefore, uh, because he can't do it, I'm going to do it for him. And all he has to do is receive the gift that I gave him. You see, the gift has no value until it's received. And that's what Ephesians chapter 2 describes. So in, in Romans chapter 9, this is where the argument for predestination often comes up. Uh, my answer was, remember, God does not predestine anyone to hell. He doesn't. And this is why we would disagree with Calvinism. But they use chapter 9 of Romans sort of as a proof text to say that God does. But I think it's important here. So Romans chapter 9, I'm not going to go through the whole thing, but the reason why it doesn't contradict the doctrine of predestination is because here in Romans chapter 9, talking about Jacob and Esau, uh, Paul the Apostle is quoting from Malachi chapter 1. And it is very clear, Malachi chapter 1 and both in Romans chapter 9, that the context there is God dealing with Edom. Specifically, he's dealing with the Edomites. So he's dealing with a group of people. And and what he's saying is, not that I hate these people or that I hated Esau, but that I did not choose them to be my people through whom which the Savior would come. I chose Jacob, who would later be renamed to Israel. And this is important because God's not, God is not the author of, of hating people. This we know. I mean, it's very clear that John chapter 3, you know, salvation is available to everyone. Through, through the Apostle Peter, it's God's desire, it's his heart that all men will be saved. Now, we know not everybody's going to be. So God doesn't hate an individual person, and he's not hating Esau. This is why we would disagree with Calvinism. But he chose Jacob. And so the distinction between the two here is what's in view. The fact that he chose Jacob in contrast to Esau, is so far, it's the same word. In other words, it's the same word that Jesus himself would use when he was in chapter 6 of Matthew's gospel, would describe uh, loving a master. You can't serve two masters. You have to love one and hate the other. And he's not talking about hating masters. He's saying What's in view here is the contrast between the two. Esau was not chosen. His people were not chosen to be God's people. It was Jacob and his people that were chosen. And the difference between the two, the contrast between the two, is what's in view there. So I hope that helps. That's why it doesn't, Anonymous, my answer does not contradict the the doctrine of predestination. Okay, next question. Anonymous says, um, at what point should we as Christians stop giving out mercy or grace and start having people deal with their consequences? Uh, Anonymous, 
this question is is weird to me because uh, your your question, if I'm reading it correctly, it seems to conflate the two into one, where uh, Christians need to stop. Get, when do they stop giving out grace and start having people deal with their consequences? The truth, the truth is, these are two different things. People always have to deal with their consequences, and, and believers and unbelievers. We every choice we make will have consequences and some more severe than others. Now, God, because of his mercy, may prevent or soften some of the consequences uh, that come from bad decisions we make. And sometimes Jesus will do that. But your question here, Anonymous, seems to imply that that as Christians, there's a certain point in which mercy or grace stops. And, and that's, not, that's not what the Bible teaches. That's not what we should be doing. You know, I liken this to Colossians chapter 3, when Paul writes to the Colossians and he says, forgive others in the same way that Jesus has forgiven you, or forgive others the same way God has forgiven you. And, and the idea there is in the same measure that you have been forgiven, well, extend that same measure of forgiveness to others. Because we have been forgiven much, we should be the ones who forgive others quickly. And so, relevant to your question here, Anonymous, at what point should we as Christians stop giving out mercy or grace? We should never stop being merciful. We should never stop being gracious. If we do, then then what that means is our mercy or grace that has run out all this while has been fueled by the flesh. So I don't want to make I don't want you to make the mistake of conflating these two. Now, let me explain further. People always have to deal with their consequences even if there's grace and mercy. Even if there's grace and mercy. Just because God's grace can cover our sin does not mean that there won't be consequences to our sin. You know, for example, there, there are people who have been at our church. You know, this would be over a decade ago. But there is one man in particular who, who came to church here, radically saved, and uh, he came forward to Pastor Ron one day and told a story about how he uh, had committed a crime. And that he uh, had the option to, as now as a Christian, to, to de- be honest. And so he, if I'm remembering correctly decided to go and turn himself in because he knew that's the right thing to do. But the question there wasn't about whether or not he was forgiven. Of course, because of God's grace, he was made brand new. He's a new creation in Christ where the old is gone and the new has come with a clean slate. But he showed up to court and showed up to jail as a brand new person, but he still had to deal with the consequences and so when it comes to dealing with people, Anonymous, um, uh, we, don't, we don't have to worry about grace ever running out. Our attitude should always be gracious towards people, but it doesn't mean we're going to let them get away with their sin. Or it doesn't mean being gracious doesn't mean we always prevent consequences. No. Grace and mercy, think about this. Grace and mercy are, are the way in which we hold people in our hearts. When Jesus thinks about us as born-again Christians, it's the way he holds us in his heart. We are perfect to him. Now, our lives are not perfect, but we are positionally perfect to him. And so the way he views us is according to that lens. He is full of grace and full of mercy. And so since he's full of grace and full of mercy, his grace and his mercy extend toward us without limit, without condition. And that's the same way we are to view other people. 
But that does not mean that all consequences will be avoided or mitigated. No, because we still have to deal with our consequences, Anonymous. So I hope that helps. I think we just got a question here that was submitted online. Oh, yes. Here we go. Um, Anonymous. Anonymous says, uh, what are your thoughts on Feng Shui? (laughs) I giggle because uh, I really have no clue about what Feng Shui is. I I know generally what it is and sort of the the mentality behind, you know, alignment and the yin yang and Asian culture, religion. But I'm an Asian guy that has no clue really what all that feng shui is. But I know enough to know that it is it's something that can affect um, the way people perceive life. Often in the way they organize things, or the way they decorate a room, the way they point things towards a certain direction. And so my answer to it is this, you know, Feng Shui itself is sort of like karate. You know, karate at its roots is something that may point to a different belief system. But you take it at face value and you bypass all of the other stuff about it. You're free in Christ. You're free in Christ. And so uh, just the motive behind what you do, Anonymous, is what's important. Not necessarily what you do, but the motive behind what you do is what's important. God cares more about, well, why are you aligning your furniture a certain way? Are you doing it to please some other gods out there? If that's the case, then no, you shouldn't do it. And you should get saved because it's wrong. Or if you think that, um, you know, aligning things in your life is going to bode well for your horoscope, then that's wrong. That's wrong. But if Feng Shui, you know, has some type of design principles that are aesthetically pleasing to you, and you, you like to organize your room a certain way, then go and do it. You're free in Christ. And so that's what I have to say, uh, Anonymous. Thank you for your question. Uh, part of the thing that uh, makes me giggle a little bit is because, uh, you know, I, I walk into a room and uh, my first thought isn't, well, is this, is this according to Feng Shui principles? Is, this, is, there, is the balance in this room, uh, you know, even? Or uh, I don't know, some people, they think that way, but I, I don't. I just... I'm looking to see if it feels good, if it's comfortable, if it's relaxing. That's good enough for me. Uh, Okay. Next question is from AM. This was submitted to our email inbox. AM says, I love God's word. I know scripture is inerrant and contains no contradictions, but there are a couple of issues in passages that I'm having a hard time understanding in relation to scripture as a whole. Uh, AM says, number one, can you please shed some light on why Paul says that eating foods sacrificed to idols is not a sin in 1 Corinthians 8, verses 1 through 11, when Jesus's message to the church in Thyatira in Revelation 2.20 makes it sound like eating food sacrificed to idols is definitely sin. Also, Peter's assertion in Acts chapter 15, verse 20, makes it sound like a sin too. Number two, also, can you please help me understand the apparent discrepancy between Matthew 5, 17 and Hebrews 8, 13? Okay, two questions. Let me take the first one here. So the first one, 1 Corinthians 8, you're correct. Here, 1 Corinthians 8 is Paul the Apostle writing to the Corinthians and he's dealing with uh, food or meat sacrifice to idol. Let me, let me just turn there real quick so I'm not... 1 Corinthians... Okay, 1 Corinthians 8. I'll do this quickly. Now about food sacrifice to idols, we know that we all possess knowledge and knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Okay, I'm going to skip down to verse 4. I think this is what you're talking about. So then 
about eating food sacrificed to idols. We know that an idol is nothing at all in the world and that there is no God but one. Okay, so 1 Corinthians 8, I think, is important here. Because Paul is saying that you can eat food and you're free and clear to do that. You've got, again, freedom in Christ, Galatians chapter 5. And so because you understand that there is only one true God and that these other idols or other gods that this food might have been part of is inconsequential because they're not real. You belong to the one true God. And therefore, you're free to do with that meat whatever you want. But I think the key here is in verse 7. But not everyone knows this. So Paul is saying here, that you have this understanding, but not everybody does. And I think this is what's going on in Acts chapter 15. Acts chapter 15 is uh, when James is mentioning the, the four things that they ask the church, the Gentiles specifically, to, to do. And three of them would be what I call mindful, being mindful of the Jews. And, and one of them, if I'm remembering correctly, would be moral. And, and that's the one that, that deals with sexual immorality. So let me, sorry, I'm not turned there. Acts 15, verse 20 says this. Uh, Instead, we should write to them, telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols. There's that when you're mentioning from sexual morality and from meat strangled, oh, the meat of strangled animals and from blood. So, see, this is the key here. Paul is writing this to the Gentiles because what he's saying is, look, you know you're free. You Gentiles are free in Christ to eat whatever meat you want. But you want to be mindful of not causing more uh, immature or sensitive Jews to stumble. So that's why Paul says don't eat it. You don't want to cause them to stumble. Now, Revelation chapter 2, verse 20 uh, when you you mention Thyatira, this this is really easy because the the mention there of eating food sacrificed to idols is always in reference to pagan worship. So so Jesus is saying here, don't participate in the pagan worship. It's not that you can't eat certain meat. It's by eating certain meat, he's implying you're participating in pagan worship, and you can't do that. You can't do that. So we're free in Christ to eat whatever. We want, but not everybody may understand that. Let me quickly go to your second question here. Also, can you please help me understand the apparent discrepancy between Matthew 5, 17, uh, 19, uh, uh, through verse 19 in Hebrews 8? Okay, what's this? Oh, Jesus said, Do not think I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And in Hebrews 8, I think this is the reference where... Uh, I'm turning here quickly. It says in Hebrews 8.13, Yes, by calling this covenant new, he has made the first one obsolete. And what is obsolete and aging will soon disappear. Real simple. So Jesus is the fulfillment of the law. He is the end of the law, Romans chapter 10. And so when Jesus said in Matthew 5, he said, Don't think that I came to abolish it. He didn't. He came to fulfill it, but not fulfill it in the sense that he was going to live his life according to the law. Romans 10 told us that, that he came so that the law would no longer apply. And by faith in Christ, that person, whoever puts their faith in Christ, as a byproduct, fulfills the law. So there is no contradiction there. Hebrews 8, Matthew 5, they're not contradicting one another. Jesus is saying, no, I came to fulfill the law. And that's why faith in Christ means the end of the law. And that's the old, the going away of the old and the coming of the new here in, in Hebrews 8 is talking about making the old, the law, obsolete. And so we, we, we no longer live according to the law. And real quickly, I, we're inside two minutes here, so I'll, I'll just wrap this up as the last question. Uh, you know, Jesus talked about uh, old wineskins, and new wineskins in Luke chapter 5. And 
in dealing with the old wineskins, what he's saying is this, you know, that the leather that was used to make these wineskins would over time harden and, and, and they would grow brittle. And so Jesus is saying that that represents the law, the old way that is now obsolete. Because if you take the new covenant and you pour it in the new wine and you pour it into the old wineskins, what happens is it's going to burst because the skin is, is no longer pliable. It's rigid. That's why we don't take the newness, the new covenant and the newness of the spirit and pour it into the old. We do away with the old. It has been fulfilled and we pour the new wine into new wineskins. That's the picture we get from this passage here in Hebrews chapter 8. And so, A.M., I, I love the fact that you study your Bible. You have These are wonderful questions, and I hope that clears things up for you. Well, you can hear the music. That means we are done with the Wednesday edition of The Word to Stand On for Life. My name is Pastor Ken. It's been my pleasure filling in for Pastor Ron. He'll be back again tomorrow at 4 for the date day edition. Don't forget tonight, 7 o'clock, here at Old Testament Study with Pastor Chris at Calvary Chapel. Till then, God bless. See you tomorrow. Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapel's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The Word to Stand On for Life is on every weekday afternoon at 4, and Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The Word to Stand On for Life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. Star General Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.